This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I am joined today by Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Hi, Sam. How's it going, Will? I'm, I'm doing great. How are you feeling about the Joseph narrative so far? I think it's good. All right, yes. Sam's Sam's only saying that because he's really worried about it, people. So he thinks it's boring. <laughs> no, no, that is no. He incorrect. doesn't think Joseph's boring. He thinks we've been boring talking about Joseph. Just the last one, okay. just the last episode. So with all the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams and everything, but this week it's really cool. There's a lot of good buried stuff, uh, and and this week, and this is going to be where Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt and they have the first encounter with each other since the betrayal when they threw Joseph down into a pit and then sold him off into slavery. So it's actually going to be 20 years later. So okay. they haven't seen him since the age of 17. He's 37 now in a position of authority. So if you don't remember how Joseph came to be in this position of power, his brothers sold him out. They, they sold him to a caravan of Ishmaelite traders who were on their way down to Egypt. When he gets there, he's sold to the captain of the guard. So this is a super, super influential figure in Egypt, very wealthy, but it also says something about Joseph that when he's seen, he's attractive, he's strong, he's got all these qualities that he goes to the highest bidder, the most powerful guy. And among those that serve the most powerful guy, God shows him favor. And even as a slave, hear this, he becomes in charge of all of his household. So everything that's associated with the captain of the guard's world, Joseph is in charge of, right? But Potiphar's wife comes after him and tries to seduce him. Joseph resists. She accuses him of rape. He gets thrown into jail, and then he works faithfully there, and God raises him up to become the chief inmate in the jail. He interprets dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. The baker's killed. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh having made the promise to Joseph that I'm going to tell Pharaoh that you have this gift. He forgets about him for two years. And then Joseph uh, is remembered when Pharaoh has two dreams about a coming famine. And when Joseph interprets these dreams for Pharaoh and says there's going to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, Pharaoh is like the spirit of God is in you. Like you, I want you to be my number one guy over all of Egypt, over dealing with all of this famine. So Joseph gets all of Egypt ready. The famine hits and eat, or the, the years of abundance hit. Joseph stores up massive amounts of grain so that when the seven years of famine hit, Egypt is ready to go. And that's kind of where we pick up in the story today. Yeah, I thought the fascinating part about that whole story that I never picked up was that when Pharaoh was looking for someone to take charge of this project, it was purely because he saw the spirit of God in Joseph. Mm -hmm. He says so. Yeah, that's like, and it's very explicitly, he's like, I'm looking for a guy with the spirit of God. And as I look around, there's only one, and that's a guy standing in front of me. Yeah. And I'd say of every single chapter that we've seen in, in the entire story of Joseph, you know, you see the spirit of God at work in him when he remains faithful to the promise. And he's faithful as a slave, and he's faithful as a prisoner. He never gives up hope. He just keeps trusting in the promise and trusting God 
with his circumstance. So you see the Spirit of God there. Then you see in this interpretation, which is kind of divinely given, Pharaoh's like, whoa, I've got all these magicians. I've got all these counselors. I don't see this in any of them, but clearly the Spirit of God is in you. But when you get to this chapter, you see that Joseph is crazy smart. Like his schemes, you know, Jacob was a schemer, right? (laughs) Holy moly, did he train his son up well, because this guy knows human nature. He knows how to, to move the chess pieces on the board. And it's just clear that the spirit of God is working through him to accomplish incredible things through his wisdom and scheming. And you're going to see that in this chapter, which is really this really uncomfortable reunion of the brothers who betrayed him and Joseph. So at the end of the last chapter, it says, when the famine had spread over all the land, so the seven-year famine has begun. And remember, the only people who know that this is seven years are the Pharaoh, it's Joseph, it's the people of Egypt, the people coming from Canaan, like Jacob and his sons would have no idea that they're just having a rough year. But they're thinking, you know, the rains will come next year. So when so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth, which, you know, in that time is, you, you, you got to think, all through Syro-Palestine, all through Arabia, all like Nubia to the south, everybody in the surrounding regions is coming to Egypt because a massive famine has struck. So all the earth is coming to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. It just keeps repeating that. So in case you missed it, yeah. the famine bad. Is, it is severe. And so in, in history, we talked a little bit about this, but we know for certain that there was this massive migration into Egypt. So a lot of people didn't just come to Egypt to buy grain and go back home. A lot of people said, our lands are devastated. By the end of this famine, our lands are devastated. Let's just migrate to Egypt. They've got it figured out. Their land is more fertile. And so you have this massive migration from all the different surrounding nations, particularly among the Canaanites, which is from where Jacob and, and his sons are, that flood into this region. And so you see that writing about this all over Egyptian literature. They're referred to as Asiatics because they're coming to Africa from the Asian continent. They're called feeders. And there's wall paintings um, that refer to them as Hyksos, which means foreign rulers. And their population in northern Egypt grows so massive because of this time period that within a couple of hundred years, they actually overthrow the Egyptian government in northern Africa, and they it'll be the Canaanites, the Hyksos, that are actually the pharaohs for the 15th dynasty. It's mm. that massive of an immigration surge that they topple the Egyptians, and it'll take the 18th dynasty to overthrow the Hyksos and bring the Egyptians back to power in northern Egypt. So this is a massive migration. Not This isn't a couple people showing up to Joseph saying, hey, you got any grain? <laughs> you know, this is a big deal. So verse 1, it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why, why do you look at one another? <laughs> and be- Sorry, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> that just seemed like some humor. It, it is. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? Why do you look at one another, he said. Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down there and buy some grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so why do you think the brothers are looking at each other? Is it what... what comes to mind 
Is it just that they're lazy and goofy? No, they the definitely I first read it. Yeah, they definitely don't. There must be something in them that doesn't want to go to Egypt just in case. Yeah, I think for them, they are so wondering. Like this feels like an omen. We're on the verge of death. Everything seems very, very dangerous and tenuous. And now all of a sudden, got we hear that there's stuff in Egypt, and now we have to go down to Egypt, which tells you that they've got a little bit of a conscience. You know, they they remember the last time they saw their brother Joseph, they were selling him out and sending him down to Egypt, and now they are about to be sent to Egypt, and they're all looking at each other like, what's going on? The other thing that I want you to see is Jacob comes out of Laban's territory, and he's got overwhelming wealth, right? But he's one year away from death. Do you hear what's going on here? He says, go down to Egypt. Otherwise, we're going to die. Hmm. So there's no there's no storehouses for Jacob. They are, in a sense, with one year of the loss of all grain, kind of paycheck to paycheck, except you know year by year. If he doesn't, if they don't find grain, Jacob realizes we're going to die. So they're all plagued by fear, um, and you got to imagine like. Why would the brothers look at each other with kind of like trepidation to go down to Egypt? I don't I don't think that they are afraid of running into Joseph. I I don't even think that they think Joseph is alive. alive. I think they're looking at this as an omen from God and it's like, uh-oh. The same thing's going to happen to us that we yeah, made is, happen to Joseph. Yeah, is God about to get some justice on us and some terrible fate is going to befall us in Egypt? Mm. And so in verse 3, it says, So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. What do you take out of that? <laughs> More favoritism. They've really good learned their lesson. Grief. Jacob, good work. Yeah, right? So so remember, Jacob has four different women with whom he's had children, and they're, he's with them simultaneously, all at the same time. He's had Two with Leah, he's had two with Zilpah, the, the maidservant, and two with Bilhah. So he has two with each of them, but he has six kids with Leah. But the only one that he really cares about is Rachel. Rachel is, is the wife that he wanted. Rachel is the wife that he loved with everything he had. And so the two children that she has is Joseph, who was clearly Jacob's favorite. Remember the clothing him with the robe of many colors and giving him all the favoritism. The brothers hate him because of it, the dreams and all that. Well, he's gone. And so now the only son from Rachel that he has left is Benjamin, and Benjamin becomes this enormous idol to Jacob. It's like his whole world is Benjamin. And so hear what he says. Imagine being one of these brothers when he's like, you know, you guys go ahead. I can't send Benjamin because he might be killed. You're you're kind of you're expendable. <laughs> I, I don't I don't need any of you ten. Uh but I need Benjamin, so I'm not going to let him go. You guys go off and die. He's staying with me. And the one of the wild things is Benjamin's not a little boy. Okay, it's because he comes off like he is. Because he's so baby. Sounds here. like he's seven. But remember, so Joseph is 17, right, when he's betrayed. Benjamin's already born at that point. Okay. 20 years have passed. So he's at least 20. So he's at least 20. So Benjamin is for sure at least in his 20s. And Jacob is like, you can't have him. Which is pretty old even. Like, it's old for our times, but back yeah. then, that's even older. I mean, yeah, full, so, full-fledged adult. Yeah, you, but he's not being treated like an adult. Okay. He has no autonomy. 
This is like failure to launch because he is so precious to Jacob that Jacob will not let him out of the nest. Mm. Like no getting a wife yet, none of that. Correct. So he is over-the-top idolatrous, which sounds weird to say, of his son. His protecting Benjamin overrides his entire life. And think about the message that's being sent to these other brothers. Like, I really don't care, you know, if, if... if you go down there and die, but I can't, I can't let Benjamin go. And do you think the other part of that is that he knows his other sons are dangerous? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's something like, yeah, I'm not going to send a prize possession with the guys who took out a whole village with the guys who somehow my other favorite son ended up dead with and still not too sure about how all that went down. So <laughs> later on in the same passage, you get, you get Jacob. Cause right now we're left with the tension. Like, does Jacob think they killed jo- Joseph? Do they? Does he think that they did something? Well, later on in this very chapter, when they come back home, Jacob is going to reveal that he thinks that they did something to Joseph because he looks at them and says, you have bereaved me of my children. And then he says, Joseph is no more. So when, when the sons come back from Egypt, he lays that at their feet like he's saying, you took Joseph from me. And you're like, whoa, he suspected them this whole time. He didn't buy the the ravenous wolf animal. Just happened to find the bloody cloak. Yeah, right, right. He's He knows that they're bad. And so, but then the question comes up, like, do you sympathize with these brothers at all? Yeah, for sure. Because they're pretty nasty. Like, if I come to you and I say, okay, your, your son slept with one of your wives. The other two committed a genocide. One of them is doing crazy stuff with shrine prostitutes everywhere. The rest of them, you believe, murdered your your favorite son by your most beloved wife that you had hoped would carry on the family name. Like, do you understand Jacob, why Jacob looks at them and goes, gosh, I can't stand any of you? Yeah, but he doesn't take any responsibility for anything. Correct. Like, that's the fact. Like, they're... I'm. In a weird way, they're all sympathetic characters because they're all messy and broken and mm-hmm. somebody hurt them and then they hurt other people and just like this toxic circle that they seem to find themselves yeah. in. But I guess the buck stops with Jacob's family with Jacob, which is just a fact of life. Like, sorry, Jacob. Yep. You've been nasty to their moms their whole life. They saw that. They've lived countless times knowing that you don't care about them or love them. Like, fine. They're going to do whatever they want to do. Who cares? It's like every single character in the story, you can find a reason to sympathize with them. Like you can you can climb into Jacob's shoes and be like, man, he lost the love of his life and Rachel who died early. He, he lost Joseph. He, like you can you can kind of climb into his shoes and imagine how he's become this emotional mess, making bad decisions all over the place at this point of his life. But you can also sympathize with his sons who've been neglected and mistreated, and you know they're like leftover kids. You know their their moms have been mistreated. They're it's just kind of a gross situation, so you can sympathize with them too. And then here you have Joseph, and you've got all this brokenness, and this chapter is going to show you how God, and it's it's the thing I love about this chapter, this whole story actually, is it gives you kind of a behind-the-curtain look at God's sovereignty. Because as you're going through this story, you could easily say, well, what in the world is that about God? What in the world is that about God? Why are you doing that? Why is he, Why are you allowing this decision but as you watch through this whole thing, by the time we get done with this chapter, we're going to see like, oh man, God is pretty brilliant. He's actually redeeming every single character in this story through stuff that feels very broken. And by the way, like we look at the brothers 
Jacob looks at these brothers and says, man, they're messy. Jacob can't stand them. But God decorates heaven with these guys. Like the gates of heaven, we're told in Revelation 21, I believe it is. The gates of heaven bear the names of these tribal leaders. So like heaven is decorated with the name of a genocidal punk kid. It's wild. You know, like, so God is looking at these, and we could do... We could do ourselves pretty well by understanding that God looks at these people and is willing to decorate heaven with them because he knows what they will be one day, right? And so we're quick to judge and dismiss and be like, man, what a mess. I, I, I don't want any part to do with these guys. God loves them enough to decorate heaven with their names. Verse 5 it says, Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Did you know that there was a famine in the land of Canaan? I've heard about it. I think it was severe. <laughs> yeah, it was severe. It was For at least a famine. year so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unknown. So it could be seven, they say. It's true. So we're, <laughs> we're a little into this. And so verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who had sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Ding, ding, ding. We have an interpretation that hey, has fulfilled. Right. Like that we go back to the dreams that Joseph had. Remember the, the 11 stalks of grain are bowing down to his sheave of grain. Like, so we get the, that this is fulfilled and they don't even know they're fulfilling it. Right. You know, when Joseph comes and he's bragging about these dreams, they want to hate him. And here they are unknowingly standing right in front of him, bowing down before him, fill, fulfilling these dreams and they're about to be begging him for their lives. Yeah, they're mad when the dream came out, but they're not mad right now. Yeah, they're not mad. <laughs> they're not. They want. They want some food yeah, right now. Like, hey. This is totally wild. And God is weaving together all of the injustices of Joseph. So why is Joseph sitting right here? Well, it's because he was sold into slavery, and because he was betrayed as a slave, and because he went into prison and was a cellmate with a guy who was a cupbearer who told Pharaoh. Like all these injustices bring Joseph to this point, and then it's a severe famine that have brought the brothers to come to this same point. So it's like all these negative events have led to this encounter. There's no positive event that you look at and go, oh, God sent you know a, a care package and invited them to come. Like, no, it's, it's all negative that's leading to this glorious moment. And so what does that do for us as believers? Gives us hope and faith in the odd times. Yeah. When when the bad things come, when the famine comes, when the injustice comes, when all of this comes, God is behind the scenes and he is sovereignly weaving together all of the circumstances for our own good. That's what we that's what we find here. So verse seven, it says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And by the way, we find later he's speaking through a translator. So he's pretending to be Egyptian. They have no idea that he's Hebrew or that he speaks their language. So he's just barking, you know, where do you come from? And they said through a translator, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And so, again, he's 17 when he leaves. He's 37 now. He's had a total makeover, Egyptian royalty style. He's got all the shaved head and everything else, and he's wearing all the regalia. They, they have no idea. They never suspect in a million years that Joseph would have become the number two guy in all of Egypt. He's basically like the prime minister, what, what Egypt used to call the vizier over all of Egypt. 
and he's the number two guy. And here's the question. Why is he looking at the crowds? Like if you're the number two guy over all of Egypt, are you actually out doing the transactions? Probably not. No. Or at least you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Like delegate. You're smart. You're a smart yeah. guy. Like you got to this point with all this plan, <laughs> so you should be able to figure this portion out. So why is he looking at all the people who are coming into Avaris from the land of Canaan? I mean, at this stage he knows that they must be coming at some point. Yeah. He's gotta know. The famine hit that land. The Canaanites are just pouring in. They're just pouring in by the thousands. Eventually I'm going to see my family. They're gonna and so he goes out there and he is spending all of his emotional energy and his attention looking, saying, where are they? Where are they? But then there's the crazy thing, like Joseph, you know, because we're reading the Bible and Christians are supposed to be nice and the people of God are supposed to be kind and, you know, super forgiving and all of that is true. But when his family shows up, Joseph doesn't sprint out to embrace them and say, oh, my brothers, you, you did this great sin to me, but I want you to know that I love you and everything is okay. He doesn't do that, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't slaughter them right on the spot either. And in fact, what he's doing is incredibly brilliant and incredibly godly. And again, we're told that he is filled with the spirit of God here. Why do you think he is watching his brothers come in desperation? And rather than just saying, okay, he doesn't just say, hey, here's some bread. Thank you very much for coming. Instead, he goes, why are you here? And speaks hard to them. Why do you think he does that? It's a test of some kind. Yeah, but I don't think it's just him going, I hate these guys, you know, because <laughs> yeah. he could have just said, hey, Bruno, <laughs> you know, the Egyptian soldier, Bruno, I want them bound and quartered and I want you to cut them apart or something like that. Like he doesn't go that way. But I think what he's doing is he is, I, my guess is he has sat and he has thought long and hard about what he would do on the day that they show up, <laughs> you know. And I think what he wants them to do initially is to squirm. I think, and not not out of just cruelty, I think he wants them to squirm and to wrestle a little bit that someone knows what they did. And so he is he's establishing all this. And so when they get to Egypt, they're already freaking out that they're in Egypt. And now they've got this guy that out of thousands of people who are pouring in, everybody gets their grain, gives their money, and goes on their way. But the vizier of Egypt comes out, and is talking to them. Like, it, it would be like you going across the border into a country that is already a little, you know, you're, you're nervous to be there. And all of a sudden, the number two guy goes, you, what are you here for? How are you going to feel? Uh, not good. <laughs> no, not at all. Like, I've been to modern day Egypt. And if I showed up into Egypt, like as it is now, you wouldn't mean number two to yell at you just oh, somewhere along the line. I would melt into a puddle on the floor. If like the lead detective at the airport did this to me, but he's wanting them to squirm. It's like, it's like, you know, a, a parent, if I find my son has done something that's really bad. Right. And, and I say, Hey man, it's Okay. It's okay. You're forgiven. Don't worry about it. And then he does it again. And then you say, hey, man, like, it's okay. I love you. You're forgiven. And then he does he does it again. And you find out that his conscience is just callous. It, 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 none of this, It's he doesn't need forgiveness. He's not looking for forgiveness because it doesn't even mean anything to him that he's doing these awful things, whatever they might be. Mm-hmm. What is a parent supposed to do in that situation? Put some kind of pressure. You want them to squirm. Yeah. You want them to start feeling the weight of their sin. And so 
as hard as it is for a parent, because the parent side of you, I mean, there's part of your parent side that wants to smash him with a club sometimes. But then the other side of you is like, I don't want to see him squirm. I don't want him to, to question things about himself. I want him to feel totally validated all the time. But if he is running toward destruction, the most loving, wise, godly thing I can do for my child is to let him squirm and wrestle with the consequences of what he's done. And so as they're coming into Egypt, they're already like wondering if things are an omen. Joseph's turning up the heat, you know, not to rub it in their face, but he wants them uncomfortable and you'll see where he goes with this. Verse nine, it says, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them because they're now bowing in front of him. He's like, oh my, the Lord fulfilled this, (laughs) you know, all this time, 20 years later, God never let go of that promise to exalt me. They're bowing to me. And he said to them, you're spies. Like, what? Uh-oh. <laughs> but where does this come from, right? Like, I, again, I want you to imagine you're, you're with the crowds, and you're coming in, and everybody gets their grain and leaves. And you get up there, and it's the number two guy in all the land of Egypt looks at you and goes, you're enemies of the state. I'm out. Like what? Like they have to be going, oh my goodness, the Lord has directed this guy's eyes right upon us. We are going down for what we did. Like, (laughs) so he says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And just because I'm, I've got a little bit of middle school boy in me, that word there in the Hebrew for nakedness is literally genitals. Like you've come to look at our most vulnerable, private fruitful part of our our country and you're trying to exploit us you guys are spies and you've come to look behind the towel you know and so they said no 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 my lord your, your servants have come to buy food we we're all sons of one man we're we're honest men we your servants have never been spies so here get here it gets again to the brilliance of joseph i want you to think about this when he comes and he levels a charge against them that means they're spending the rest of their lives in dungeons or they're going to be killed on the spot. Like if you're an enemy of the state, what is that going to require them to do on the spot? Get defensive and prove they're not? Yeah, you, no, let me tell you who I really am. And now they want to bring out all the evidence of who they really are. This is my family and this is who my dad is and these are all my brothers. And oh, by the way, we're all sons of one man. We're like, And so he's he's getting them to volunteer everything about what their home life looks like. Because if you're enemies of the state, then you're spies that are coming from all over the place, different families. But they're like, we, we're not coming from a kingdom that's trying to stand up against Egypt. We're sons of one man. We're just a teeny tiny family. Like, don't worry about us. Like, you have nothing to worry about. We're just, we're just a family. And so, again, you see Joseph, who's turning up the heat, wanting them to squirm that divine justice is catching up with them. And it it works. Listen to what they say in verse 13. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers. So, like, they're volunteering stuff that, like, he's he's not asking, at least not yet. But he says, we're 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And then he says what Joseph is curious about in part. The youngest is this day with our father. So Joseph now hears they haven't killed my other brother. Because if you're Joseph. Yeah, I think Benjamin was next because obviously yeah. he became dad's favorite. Yeah, I, they, they did away with me because I was dad's favorite. You know, presumably dad created a multicolored coat for Benjamin after I got sold out. 
And what's to keep them from doing away with him? But here they are saying, no, he's still alive. But they also say, and one is no more. That's awkward. Yeah. So they're looking at the one who they believe is no more. Probably they really do believe that he's dead because if you go back. Odds are good, right? Yeah. 2,000 years after the period of Joseph and the Roman era, what do you think the life expectancy for a, a slave was? Let's let's assume that they survive birth. If they survive birth, how long do you think they live? Um, 25 years? 17. Okay. That's in Rome. So with 2,000 years of advancements and everything else. So now rewind back to the days of Egypt and this period. It's a safe bet. It's not better for sure. Yeah. Joseph left home at 17, went to be a slave where they just run you into the ground. Very unhealthy. You're not getting the best meals and fed and all that stuff. They're thinking he's got to be dead by now. There's, there's no way that he's alive. And plus, I think it's easier for them to just say he's dead. I don't have to worry about what he's up to. I don't have to think about how he's being mistreated. I don't have to think about him crying himself to sleep every night, wondering why his brothers betrayed him. And so they calm their conscience, I think, in part by saying he's dead. You know, there's no way he's still alive. I'm, you know, one one of our brothers, he's no more. So in verse 14, Joseph is, he's, he's not letting off the gas. He says, it is as I said to you, you are spies. It's like, ooh, you're not wiggling out of this. By this, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And if you're, now I want you to pause for a moment because you've read the story, you know, numbers of times. What in the world has to be going through their mind right now? Like if, if I come to your country and you think I'm a spy, but I've told you, hey, I've got, you know, I've got one younger brother and, and another brother who's dead. And he says, uh, you are not leaving this place unless I see your younger brother. Like wh- why? <laughs> what possible reason does the vizier of Egypt have to say, oh, to prove you're not spies, I need to see your younger brother. Maybe just tracking with their story, because like their only like case to get out of this is, hey, we're all actually brothers. We have one father, and the real hardcore evidence is that we have one brother who's dead. We can't prove that he's dead, obviously, because yeah. he's not dead, and we don't even know that, but we do have one brother who's still around. But even still, they could have gone back to Canaan and found a young kid and been like, hey, I kid, that's you know, we'll give you some money if you go pretend to be our younger brother. If they were spies, but this to them, like I'm thinking if I'm one of the brothers, there is no rational explanation. I guess, I mean, it could be to verify the story. But to me, it's like, man, this doesn't make any sense. This has to be the judgment of God. Yeah. Like we took out one of Rachel's kids and now all of a sudden this guy the second in command of all of Egypt is barking at us and he wants to see the other one. Like I would be totally blown away by this. And so what the brothers know is that there's no chance that Jacob is going to allow them to bring Benjamin back. And so he's just said, you're going to stay in prison here unless your youngest brother comes back here. And Jacob's already said, Nope, that is not happening. So now you're you're wrestling with this idea that he just pretty much gave us a life sentence here, except for the person who sent back. And so he, he starts saying what he's going to do. He says, send one of you and let him bring your brother. So he's telling them, pick one of you. <laughs> Imagine this. 
Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you all remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And I want you to imagine what that <laughs> what that jail cell is like. Like, how, how do they figure out who's going to be free? Who gets to go back? Think about what's going on here, right? Joseph was thrown. When Joseph made the long trip to see his brothers, what happened to him? They took him and they threw him into a pit. And the, the word for pit and dungeon are the same exact word. And so now here you have all of the brothers who have traveled a long way, and Joseph sees them, and what does he do with them? He puts them in a pit. What's, what the, the Hebrew word is bore. And so now they're in a dungeon, the same as a cistern. And so now the, the roles are starting to reverse on them. And you really show your true colors when you're debating who's going to live and who's going to die. Mm-hmm. So again, it is a real wisdom test on how, like he's probably thinking who's going to take charge and is Reuben going to force it or is Judah going to force him getting out or are they going to be like, no, we're the oldest, we'll stay. But it does make me wonder like which of the brothers would have been chosen. We never get to find out. So anyway, all of that time was just to make them squirm and to turn them against each other probably. And on verse 18, it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest, men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring the youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So this, this is life and death, and they did so. And so this time, he's like, okay, it's not going to be nine of you who remain and one who goes back. It's nine of you are going to go back, but one of you is going to stay with me here in the prison. Wouldn't it have been weird for the second-in-command of Egypt to say, I fear God, mm-hmm. and for them to be like, oh, that's the same Why? God. Yeah. And like, But that's like our God. Like That would be unusual, wouldn't it? Yeah, the Hebrew word here is Elohim, which it's like the formal title of God. And um, I looked into that because I don't know if what he is saying and it's just translated into Hebrew, because remember, he's speaking in Egyptian through an interpreter and then it comes down into the scripture. I don't know if he's literally saying, I fear the same God you fear, because that would have been like, whoa. Yeah, that should have been shocking. And maybe it was intended to be shocking. Maybe they heard that and went, oh my gosh, it really is God who's putting this on us. Because if he worships our God and he's putting it through, you know, maybe maybe it's coming directly from him. But then there's also the possibility that this means just like, I, I fear the justice of heaven. I, like, I okay. believe in the gods, I believe in punishments and the hereafter, so I care about honesty. And so... If they leave Egypt, they're in their minds, they're never coming back because they're not thinking there's going to be a famine next year where they have to come back for more grain. They're thinking whoever stays here is done forever because Benjamin is never coming back. And he just told us, if we come back without Benjamin, he's going to kill us. So this is, this is a life sentence for whoever stays. Whichever brother is going to be left in that pit has to be feeling the intense weight of despair total loneliness. It, it's, again, exactly what Joseph experienced himself, thrown into the pit and left by his brothers forever in Egypt as a prisoner. Again, real, real good game plan by Joseph. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So then the big question is, who's he going to pick? In verse 21, it says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are 
guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So then Reuben, so everybody's in agreement with that. Like they know they're there because of what they did to Joseph. They, they see it. But then Reuben pipes up. He's the firstborn son. And he says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And if you remember, you go back to Genesis 37, when Joseph was betrayed. And remember, Reuben is the one who's like, no, 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 no. Do not do this. We are not going to do this. But they did it anyway when Reuben left. And so it said they did not know that Joseph is sitting there listening to him. So he hears Reuben saying, I was never for this. I was against this plan from the start. And so if you're Joseph and you're thinking, okay, the firstborn son who would have had authority over the brothers didn't endorse this. So who gets the blame next? Judah. Well, he doesn't know that Judah was conspiring about the silver. He didn't hear that part. It's the second born, right? Because there's a ladder of authority in terms of birth birth order. And so now the firstborn said, I didn't do anything. I, I told you guys not to do this. So who's the second born? Simeon. Simeon. Okay. That's right. And so guess who's going to have to stay in prison? So what he's doing is he's finding which one of you is ultimately responsible for me being here. He hears Reuben say, I didn't endorse this. So it would have been Reuben. And it sounds like they didn't fight against Reuben in that moment. Yeah, right? They weren't like, yeah, yeah you did. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, exactly. But this is the first time that you see the collective conscience of the brothers. Like they they recognize they're guilty. They recognize they deserve this punishment. And there's even some sense of sympathy that you hear in their words when they're like, man, we saw his distress. Like you don't say that unless it bothered you. And they've been holding on to that vision for yeah. 20 years. You know, yeah. that's a picture that stuck with them. Yeah, this has been seared into my brain. Like, we saw it and we did nothing. And so now they, they're convinced the, the God of heaven is punishing them. But I love how Joseph, he's holding all this close to the vest so that they don't get to see that he's up to something. He doesn't let them know that he speaks Hebrew. So verse, verse 24, it says, Then he turned away from them and wept. So that reveals that Joseph is actually moved by the fact that they're not hard-hearted. They're not entirely irredeemable. They recognize that what they did was wrong, and that's enough after 20 years holding on to this to just crush Joseph and to, to send him into tears. And so he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So again, why? let me ask you this question, because this kind of gets at the heart of the wisdom of the story. Why, at this point, you know, he hears that they're, they're grieved over what they've done. They recognize it was wrong. They, they're like, you know, we shouldn't have done it. Reuben is kind of wagging his finger at him. Like, why at this point doesn't Joseph say, oh, brothers, come here, it's me? Well, they can be grieved of heart as much as they want and not be changed. Mm-hmm. Isn't he looking for a change? people here like okay now i'm gonna take a brother of yours and he's gonna be in a dungeon are you guys gonna walk away from this brother just like you did me but let me ask you this question if this happens because we we see joseph and so many in the church are quick to say wow this is really brilliant like he's getting to the heart of who they are but do you think that a christian let's suppose that a christian wrongs you like does does something really wrong to you and, you know, you're just devastated by this. It, it is a life-shattering decision. And then they come to you, and they're like, 
gosh, you know, I, I shouldn't have done that, but do you have an obligation? What's your obligation as a Christian in response to them? Forgive them. What does that mean? Does forgiveness mean giving them a hug and saying, hey, we're buds again? I think it could. Could? I mean, doesn't reconciliation look different? Yeah, in all that's aspects. what I'm getting at. Okay. Like, we'll- so reconciliation is a different animal than forgiveness, right? Because forgiveness is saying, I don't want the worst for you. I don't, I don't want God to judge you. I don't want hell to fall on you. I don't want your life wrecked. I don't want you to, to come to harm. Like, I am taking the cost of what you did to me, and I am paying it all myself. You wounded me. I don't want the cost of my wounding to fall on you anymore. That's forgiveness. What that doesn't mean, though, is I've got to come and give you a hug and a kiss on the cheek and be chummy with you and say, hey, we're just like we were before you betrayed me and stabbed me in the back. And there's, there's, a, there's a tendency among Christians to say we have to do that, and the Bible would say that's not wise. Like you should always be eager to reconcile. It's like Jesus says, turn the other cheek so that it gives the other person an opportunity to give you a kiss of greeting. But at the same time, there is a real wisdom that says sometimes if you just keep enabling somebody to not realize the weight of what they've done, you're not doing something good for their soul. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I think we could learn a lot from Joseph in terms of wisdom of what that looks like because he clearly, he could have killed them the moment they showed up on on the scene. So he's forgiven them in some sense. You know, he's not punishing them for wrecking his life right away. But he does start going down the road of, of saying, are these the kind of people that I want to make myself vulnerable to again? I don't, yeah. I'm not punishing them, but do I want to be vulnerable and in a relationship with them again? Yeah, because he is showing that repentance does involve a change of lifestyle. Yeah. You know, like, I can feel as bad as I want and stay in it, but I'm just going to do that to somebody else again. Yeah, it's like, it's it's the abusive person or the the addict, like, by just continually going, oh, here's another chance, here's another chance, here's another chance, here's another chance, that might be the least loving thing you can do for that person. Yeah. Because it just enables them to stay hard-hearted. And that's where Joseph is. And I think that's where his heart is, honestly. By the fact that he turns and weeps and then comes back and has a hard face, like you don't go from weeping to being like, all right, time to time for jail. Like he's clearly wanting the best for them. And he's still tender to where they're at. Verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. And they loaded their donkeys with grain and they departed. And so now again, Joseph is is recreating the tragedy to terrify his brother. So let's walk through it. They have traveled a far distance to get to Joseph. So that's like the inverse of what he did at the beginning, right? He traveled the far distance to come to them at Dothan. So then Joseph accuses them of making the trip just to gain information. He says, you're spies. You've come to, to, to find out what we're up to. Well, what, would, what did they accuse Joseph of? Oh, just looking for a bad report to yeah. get back to dad. You just want to come and, and give a bad report. You're just coming for information. So then Simeon gets thrown into a pit, a dungeon. Geez, does that sound familiar? Joseph gets thrown into a dungeon. Then Simeon, presumably because Benjamin's never going to be allowed to come back, <laughs> Simeon's lost forever in Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Because that was the fate of Joseph. And then all of the brothers are going back home with what? Silver. Silver. Oh. You hear what's going on here? That's what they betrayed Joseph for. And here again, you have the sobering news that they're coming back to their dad to say one of your sons is not coming back home. 
he's in a he's he's lost. Except without the death part. Not yet. Yeah, right? Brilliant, brilliant scheme by Joseph here. Filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack, and he said to his brothers, My money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And so immediately they see their own money pouches. These are their money pouches that they left with, and they're all filled with silver, and they've got to be thinking, no, 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 we, we paid, but here they are again. Did we, did we forget to pay? Did, how did this happen? We're going to be accused of stealing from Egypt. Now we'll never see Simeon again because if we ever go back there, they're going to accuse us of stealing yeah. grain and, and leaving without payment. And so they know, like, man, I, th- I could have sworn I gave the silver. And they're convinced absolutely that God is bringing justice on them. And one of the cool things when you get to the next chapter, spoiler alert, they go, they do eventually go back to Egypt. And when they get before Joseph and his people, they're like, we, we, we didn't steal it. We promise. Like, I don't know what happened. We had the silver, but you know, here's double the amount of silver, but I, we, we didn't steal it. And his attendants like, Hey, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And he lies. Huh. And so what does he want him to do? He Joseph is telling his team, I want them to think that God did this, hmm. which is kind of wild. Like, is that right or wrong? I don't even know. <laughs> it's, it's elaborate at least. Wow. Because he's, he's totally scheming to get them in a place where they're not so worried about what Joseph is going to do. Well, he, yeah, he wants them to wrestle with God, which shows huh. you Joseph is just awesome. Like, this guy is brilliant. So verse 29, long passage here. It says, When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. You know, Jacob right now is going, what did you do? That's true. They've never been spies, but they're not honest <laughs> men. You know, so yeah. they're they're half truth in this one. Uh, yeah, like, they're definitely not honest men. So verse 32, it says, we told him, like, we're 12 brothers, we're sons of our father, like, we're definitely not spies, and one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go away. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." And now, if you're Jacob, what are you thinking? I want you to imagine. You, you don't know the backstory here. You've just got these nine brothers, these nine sons who come saying, we've come back, and now we need Benjamin. We need to take Benjamin to Egypt. Seems like an elaborate hoax to kill Benjamin again. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, if I'm Jacob, I'd be going, what did you do to make this man think that you were spies? Like, what were you up to? And all of a sudden, you're coming home without one of your brothers. Like, I'm thinking, okay, you probably tried to steal the grain, and one of you got caught during that, and the rest of you had to run away for your lives. You were up to no good again. Something had to have happened for this guy to imprison Simeon. Like, he doesn't just come and say, hey, I need to see your brother, and you're going to jail. Like, what did you do? I would, as a dad, I'm just telling you, like, I wouldn't believe my kids. (laughs) Like, it's like... No, really. The teacher just punished me for no reason. (laughs) Right. 
And But then again, this begs the question, why in the world would the second most powerful man on the most powerful empire on the face of the planet demand to see Benjamin? Yeah, that would be another curious thing because you're like, that's the biggest lie. Yeah. This guy shouldn't know who you were. This guy didn't see you. You didn't see this guy. You weren't close enough to royalty to see this guy. So what's actually you guys are after? So, And I already suspect that you killed my Joseph. And now the only other son of Rachel, you're coming back and saying you need him? No chance. Yeah, and he's definitely not coming back. Yeah. you you At this point, now you're like, you're definitely, you definitely killed Joseph, and now you're trying to take Benjamin. No chance in the world that I'm giving him to you. And then the next verse just takes every all this tension and doubt and suspicion, and imagine this. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they... And their father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid. So it's like, if you're one of the guys, like, lead with that. <laughs> so now Jacob sees the money coming out, and now you're like, you stole the grain. You still have all the money that I sent you with. Maybe you either stole the grain and one of you got caught, or maybe instead of giving the Egyptians your silver, you sold your brother, hmm. which is in their character, right? Wouldn't they, be the first time. That's right. They've, they've done it before. And so verse 36, so verse 36, and Jacob, their father said to them, you've, hear this, because this reveals what Jacob has been thinking all this time. Just imagine him pointing the finger at, at all of them. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. So he lays the blame for Joseph, Simeon, and now you're trying to take Benjamin all this has come against me. You know if he believes that they're responsible for taking away his children. Benjamin is not going anywhere. And then Reuben, listen listen to the logic, because this is the argument you don't want to make. If, if your dad thinks that you're a murderer, this is probably not the best argument to make. So Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. Like, uh, for real? Yeah, that's what this family needs, more bloodshed. <laughs> Within the family, more death. Yeah, kill my two sons if I don't bring them. And you know what he's doing? Like what Jacob has just said is, I've lost two sons. I've lost two sons because of you guys. And Reuben's like, all right, well, then if we don't do it, kill my sons. I, I got two sons. You take my two sons. Tradesies. Kill them. You know, see, we'll, we'll be even. Put, put them in my hands and I'll bring them back to you. Talking about Benjamin. And so this is just outrageously gross. But now, Jacob comes back, and he slams the door. And I'm imagining, like, grief-filled fury right here. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. Now, that was a spear through the heart of these brothers. Hear what he just said. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. What does that mean? Again, he cares nothing for the other sons. You're not my sons. I only have one son left, and it's Benjamin. Ooh, good night. And he says, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you're going to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. Like, it would it would kill me. I can't handle the thought of losing Benjamin. So now picking up, we're just going to go through the first part of chapter 43. It says, now the famine was severe in the land. Did you know that the famine was severe in the land? I've heard about it. Yeah, So, but this is now year number two. 
So maybe seven. That's right. So Joseph here has given them enough grain for a year. Remember, Simeon has been rotting in a dungeon for a year. They've gone through all of their grain. And when they'd eaten all the grain that they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. So they're on the verge of starvation. They're, they know they're going to die if this doesn't happen. But Judah now pipes up, and Judah becomes the spokesman because Reuben has disqualified himself, I guess. And he says, Dad, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Like he told us he was going to kill us if we came back without him. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. So Judah is leading Jacob to the logical conclusion. It's pretty smart. Right? Like Judah. If you can risk sending Benjamin to Egypt with us, and he might die there. Like, if you're right about us, you know, maybe we'll kill him. Maybe circumstances beyond our control will kill him. That's one option. Or you can keep Benjamin here with you, but we are not going to Egypt without him. So what does that mean? And we get the conclusion in this next passage, verse 6. So Jacob or Israel said to them, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, uh, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, If your father is still alive, do, do you have another brother? Which, by the way, is not the way the story went down. Yeah. They totally volunteered this information, but they're skirting skirting accountability. It's been a while, you know? Yeah, well, maybe they forgot. What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Again, it's time to to step into Jacob's world because you got a whole bunch of broken characters in the story right now. Jacob is wrecked by grief. He's lost his the love of his life, Rachel. He's lost Joseph. He's now lost Simeon. And if we're honest, like he lost the 10 oldest sons a long time ago. He doesn't care about them. The only thing that matters in his life is Benjamin. It's the only thing he cares about. It's his great idol. It's the only treasure that he has left. And one of the things I pondered when I was reading these chapters, like he never stops and prays. Lord, please, like remember when Isaac is told, don't go down to Egypt and he obeys God, and in the middle of a famine, God blessed him with crops a hundredfold. We saw that in Genesis 26. Hey, there's a solution here, Jacob. Like, reach out. Pray to the Lord. He doesn't even go there that we know of. If I'm Jacob, I'm now totally confused about what the sons are doing. Like, why would the brothers, if they're facing starvation and certain death themselves, why would they keep on insisting, like, we've got to take Benjamin? Just go get food. So it says in verse 8, Judah said to his Israel, his father, and this is where you get a picture that Judah's a changed man. He says, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. And if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we'd have been back now twice. And so what Judah says, and it's interesting, Jacob's making the case, I've lost two sons. Then Reuben comes along and says, you can kill my two sons. But what's Judah's story? He's lost two sons too because of wickedness of his early days before he had a change in his life and before he had that encounter with Tamar where he said, you are more righteous than I, and his heart began to change. And so now Judah comes and says, I'm not going to pledge anyone else's life for me to be truthful and honest. 
I will pledge my own life. Mm. May may the blame fall on me forever. And it's a it's a picture of self sacrificial love. I will stand and guarantee you that I will bring your son back, or you can take it out on me. And there is something about the tone and sincerity of Judah's statement that won Jacob over, because then Jacob says to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to this man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Maybe it was an oversight. So Jacob's not taking any chances, man. He he wants to overwhelm this Egyptian official with gifts. So he wants, like, we took the grain, now we're going to give double the payment of the grain, and we're going to send you back the pouches of silver. Like, you're going to get more than you were owed. And this is his Hail Mary. Like, he, he can fear that maybe they're going to be arrested by the vizier. Maybe the vizier would turn them away for taking too long to return. Maybe the brothers would take the wealth and disappear. That's an option. Maybe they're going to kill Benjamin, but the only alternative now is death. So it's just like Jacob, again, is being stripped down to where his only option is God. He's, he's lost all control. He's at the end of himself. His only option is to let go of Benjamin. And he says, take your brother and arise and go to the man. And it's the first time that he mentions God in this whole thing. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before that man. And may he send you back your older brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. And so in this, like, there's a couple, of, there's so much here. Notice that he says, maybe he'll send back your other brother and Benjamin. Like, what's the problem with that? Lots of love. Dude, like he has a name. <laughs> but it's your brother, your other brother. And Benjamin, like only Benjamin is worthy of a name. And my, like he just, you get the sense Jacob does not have warm and fuzzy feelings for his 10 older sons. And so here I want to pause for a moment. And I just want to say like all of this crazy stuff that is happening in this story is exactly what needed to happen for every single person in the story. So you think of Joseph who suffered all of these terrible injustices but it's exactly what needed to happen to take that proud 17-year-old who wanted to lord it over everybody and rub it in their face that he was going to have them bow before him. If he'd have never had that checked, he may have grown into a megalomaniacal ruler, right? And yet all of this injustice has made him soft. It's made him lean on the Lord. It's made him humble to bring salvation to the world. But it's exactly what needed to happen for the hard hearts of his older brothers. Like they go down to Egypt and they're wrestling with, oh my gosh, like is this justice for what we did to our brother? And now all of a sudden their their conscience is starting to to bother them. They're now soft, softening, thinking maybe we should be punished. This is all God coming back after us. We should have never done that to Joseph. Like they're all breaking. And then it's also breaking Jacob of his obsession and his idolatry with his son Benjamin because he spent the last 20 years going this is my sole reason for living. I can never let him out of my sight. I can. I always have to protect him. I'm the ultimate hover parent, and nothing is ever, 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 ever going to happen to Benjamin. And now through all of this craziness, Jacob is forced to put his precious Benjamin on the altar. And beyond that, he's forced to entrust him to sons that he despises. 
And so why would God ordain all this? Like you can see he's weaving the story together to redeem the brothers to Joseph. He's weaving the story together to weave the the 10 sons to Jacob. He's weaving the story together to break Jacob of all of his idolatry with Benjamin. He's like God through all the mess. You just see his sovereign wisdom and beauty that he's making it, bringing all this together for the good of all of them. Hmm. You'd never imagine it in a million years if you were walking through the story in any one of their shoes. But being able to be outside of the story, reading the story in Scripture, you see God's sovereignty is amazing. And so probably for the first time since Jacob was at the Jabbok River and he knew that Esau was coming with 400 men and he'd lost all of his strength and he'd lost all ability to control the situation and he had no other option but to wrestle with God and lean upon his strength, (laughs) Jacob is back there again. Mm. And he cries out, may God Almighty have mercy on you before the man. And so the men took the presents, they took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they arose and they went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And some really, really beautiful stuff is is about to happen in the next uh, two chapters. But we see, again, just reminding us, and this is something that we can take comfort in, is when we're walking through those situations where we cannot make sense of what God's doing, when we see how he is and who he is and how he operates again and again and again throughout Scripture and through our own lives, it gives us comfort to know that he's not caught by surprise, that he is weaving together each and every one of our stories through all the bad circumstances and hardships to ultimately bring about something that's going to make us more like his son, more beautiful, and it's going to bring him glory in the long run. And in the eternal sense of things, you will give thanks for every single thing that he puts on your lap because it will lead you to who God is making you ultimately to become. And that's a comfort. That is. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Join us next time as we continue the story of Joseph and his brothers and what is sprinting toward a redemptive solution. A like and subscribe to our podcast if you have not left a rating on the different platforms that we're on, please do so. A good rating at that. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's a bad one. Yeah, don't Like do if that. you don't like us, just don't, <laughs> don't listen anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it does, it really does help people to find our podcast and we would love for more people to learn about how awesome our God is. So have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.